We are going to dive right into uh, the big story of the day. The Prime Minister earlier announcing several hundred thousand doses of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine will be available in this country before the end of the year. This is the largest mobilization of vaccines in Canada's history uh, and being able to start with uh, a smaller number and rapidly scale up as the flow of vaccine doses starts increasing quite rapidly. Um, this is a good thing to allow the folks on the ground to be able to deliver certainly this Pfizer vaccine, which has a high degree of complexity in the delivery. David Aiken is on the line with us now, chief political correspondent with Global News. David, thanks so much for taking some time. Yeah, happy to be here, Jill. Uh, So what do we know then as far as how many doses are going to be part of this initial uh, rolling out of the vaccine and where it's going to go first? Right. So now we really get into the nitty gritty details of the requirements of this particular vaccine, the one that's likely to be approved this week by Health Canada, and that's the Pfizer vaccine. And Joe, you probably read this, that the Pfizer vaccine has some very unique handling requirements. Among other things, it's got to be stored at minus 80 degrees Celsius. So we need special freezers, special facilities, and then it's got to be sort of uh, thawed, decanted, mixed, and delivered in a certain time frame. So that puts, as you say, some special requirements on things, so special that, for example, the territories are not set up to receive this vaccine. So scratch the Yukon, scratch Northwest Territories, scratch Nunavut off the list on the first doses. What else do we know about it? Well, we know what the prime minister said. It's going to be distributed basically on a per capita basis. Might be some small adjustments, but, but think of a per capita basement, uh, basis. So 249,000 doses for the country. And remember, it's a two-dose vaccine, so that means 125,000 people really are going to get this thing before the new year. And so what does that mean for British Columbia? This is my calculation. Again, it's on a per capita basis. If you divvied it up equally, you're looking at about 16,800 people in British Columbia that can start their two-dose regimen, right? Mm -hmm. And I say start because it doesn't mean you're going to, 16,800 people are going to be vaccinated by Christmas. They won't be because you need three weeks in between each dose. So the first vaccines will start arriving next week and we'll see 249,000 in the country by year end. And presumably, again, per capita number of British Columbians are going to get theirs. So some British Columbians may get the first prick next week and it'll be three weeks before their vaccinated with the second one after that and so on so that is sort of the what we're looking at at this point in time and one of the reasons it's sort of coming out in small drips and drabs if you will just this relatively small batch is to make sure the system works uh, because we don't want any of these uh, vaccine doses to go to waste and in fact Pfizer has said it's only essentially handing out the doses in pairs so it, those it, it's it's even though 249,000 doses are coming to the country, they're essentially coming in pairs. So if you were to get one, we give you one now and we'd reserve your second one in the freezer for you for two weeks from now. If I got one, I'd get mine now and there'd be one with my name on it in the freezer for three weeks from now. So that's how it's going to roll out at the beginning is only 125,000 Canadians are going to get at least their first shot before the end of the year. And then we get into more deliveries, more shipments. We've been told we're on the hook for, uh, you know, six million doses. Again, they're all two dose vaccines, six million doses before April the 1st. And I know that makes sense there. It it does. (laughs) That part makes sense. Uh, I think we were following along, but where it gets a little bit muddied. And I know the prime minister was asked about this. uh, The chief medical advisor at Health Canada has been asked about this, too, in that uh, we talk about the most vulnerable and who's going to be getting the vaccine Mm -hmm. first. But there doesn't seem to be uh, a hard and fast answer to that. There isn't because it's not a federal government decision. That decision will be entirely the decision of John Horgan and his cabinet. They get to decide, your premier gets to decide who in B.C. gets it first. And B.C. has not yet announced its vaccine priority plan. Um, in fact, I was just uh, emailing back and forth with our friend Richard Zussman. You know, Richard's all over this, and Richard says that I think that's going to come tomorrow or the next day in, in B.C., It happened just an hour ago in Ontario. Ontario announced its vaccine priority plan. Quebec, uh, what is it? It's just 10 minutes ago. Quebec just announced their plan. 
Alberta is was the first in the country to announce its vaccine priority plan, and we're still waiting to hear from other provinces, and B.C. is one of those. The federal government, all it's done, is said, here's our recommendations, and I'll run them through very quickly with you, Jill. First, it says the first group of people that ought to get this thing should be residents and staff, residents and staff, of anyone living in a senior's collective dwelling. So that's a long-term care facility, retirement home, chronic care hospital, you name it. it. That's the federal guideline. So staff and residents of any place where seniors are living. The number two uh, from the federal government recommendation is anybody over 70 should be next. But start with the people who are over 80 and then work backwards, essentially by age, till you've got everybody who's over 70. The third priority, this is the federal government's recommendation, are frontline health care workers. They would get they would be the third group of people. And then the fourth group of people would be in adults living in indigenous communities. And the thinking there is, you know, you get COVID in an indigenous community, it can have disproportionate health effects because they're frequently remote. Now that again is the federal recommendation. Alberta's modified that already. In fact, Alberta says the second group uh, ought to be those over 65 in on First Nations reserved. Alberta agrees, let's get long-term care facilities, residents and staff. That's number one. But then Alberta bumped it up to say, let's protect indigenous communities. So I'm not sure where BC is going to go. Obviously, there's a lot of indigenous communities in BC in the north, remote communities uh, that, that, that Premier Horgan may say, we need to bump them up as a priority. But I'll be almost, I'll, I'll, I'll bet my bottom dollar that long-term care facilities, seniors, and those who care for those seniors, if they're not at the top of the list, I'd be very surprised. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us to break down what we know so far. Uh, We'll be expecting more uh, information, like you said, from the provinces and more from the federal government, I'm guessing, on the other vaccines and what's coming next. Knock on wood. All right, David Aiken, thanks again so much. Uh, David is our chief political correspondent with Global News on the line, uh, breaking down exactly what was announced by the federal government earlier today. Well, later today, we are hoping to get an update on the restrictions currently in place in B.C. and an update on whether or not they will be increased. This happening while south of the border, a regional stay-at-home order is now in effect for parts of California. So we wanted to find out exactly what that looks like and what's happening there. CBS News reporter Jim Crisula is joining me on the line now. Jim, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, my pleasure, Jill. Uh, what exactly is happening then as far as several counties uh, in uh, the Los Angeles area in Southern California uh, having this stay-at-home order? That's right. We're looking at about 20 million people being told basically stay at home. Don't go out unless you absolutely have to uh, for any kind of essential travel. Doctors visits, although many, many people in the States and I'm sure even in Canada, of course, have canceled doctor in-person doctor visits. Governor Gavin Newsom in California is saying that this is absolutely necessary because, again, COVID-19 cases are surging across California and also hospitalizations as well. Most offices will have to close under this uh, lockdown. Gatherings of people from different households are being banned. Of course, easier said than done in terms of enforcing that. Bars and personal services like hair salons will be temporarily closed again. Restaurants will be allowed, Jill, to only offer takeout and delivery. And you mentioned it's easier said than done. Are there penalties then for people who are caught doing things that are no longer permitted? Basically, no. Now, in some states, they can give you a citation. But again, most of police agencies are saying, look, we have bigger problems to deal with and then trying to enforce these mask mandates or restrictions, stay at home orders. So again, it's basically up to people to abide by this. And what uh, sense do you, do you get? And I know you mentioned the ICU and from what I understand that this order was largely triggered because of the capacity in ICUs in Southern California hospitals falling below 15 percent. Um, yes. We've seen other lockdown measures and strict measures taken in California. Is it just a sense then that they were lifted too soon or people weren't following the rules or, or why is it do you think or, or what are we seeing that's that's back uh, leading to these surges in cases? Well, it could certainly be a combination of that. But again, like many of the states, especially in rural areas, there's a general opposition 
to any kind of a mask mandate or restrictions. People just there are a lot of people of the opinion, Jill, who say, hey, I'm not going to let government dictate my life. I'm not going to let government tell me what I can and can't do. And I think certainly that attitude has led to a resurgence of cases, not only in California, but across the United States. Some of the more rural areas, especially in the nation's heartland, uh, are seeing some of the highest rates of new cases and hospitalizations uh, across the United States right now. And it must seem strange then, for lack of a better word, while we're seeing the hospitalizations in the United States increase, the deaths increase, that there is still this large group but that think it's not a big deal. That's right. And I think certainly some of that goes back to President Donald Trump and his verbiage early on in this pandemic. When you go back to the spring, even the late winter and early spring, into February and March and April, when he by and large downplayed the significance of this, the threat of COVID-19. He, of course, has really never come out and forcefully said people should wear masks or face coverings of some kind. So, uh, again, he still has, as we saw in the election here a few weeks back, early November, he still has tens of millions of people who support him here in the States. and, And by and large, they are looking at coronavirus as much as similar as to, as to how the president has. There are still many people you talk to here, here, Jill, amazingly, who believe this is all a hoax, that there's really nothing to all of this. Um, and with this stay-at-home order, like you said, there are others in the country as well, but uh, looking at the specifics of the California order, uh, saying that it's going to be in place, I believe it said for at least three weeks, that puts us through Christmas. So is there concern that there will be uh, people, uh, maybe more people, who are going to not follow these rules and still gather for Christmas? Sure, as was the case with Thanksgiving here about a week and a half ago here in the States, obviously. And a lot of these states are saying that they're starting to see the beginning of of a new surge uh, that they attribute to people getting together for Thanksgiving a week and a half ago. Uh, Which makes sense if you look at the incubation period. I think uh, that was uh, what we were told, that to to brace for those numbers and to see. So I I wanted to ask you that. So we're starting to see numbers or, or the increase in cases because of those gatherings? Yes, in fact, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's leading infectious disease expert, has been talking about that the last few days. And he predicted that. He said that was one of his big concerns, that we would see a week to two weeks after Thanksgiving even more of a surge. And that's what's happening. It looks, it appears across several states right now, if not most all of the states. And uh, Jim, just before I let you go, I wanted to to check with you. What's happening uh, with schools in that I understand some schools can stay open? And and is that something where there's a bit of an exception to the stay-at-home rule? That's right. Now, in many cases, Jill, schools, of course, did the virtual learning. And then at the start of the new school year back in the fall, in in late uh, September, when when kids started going back, some systems went back to in-person learning. But in many cases, the school systems that did that have now had to go to back to virtual learning because of the surge of cases in, in places across the United States. So uh, even colleges, higher ed, that's a scenario that's played out across many, many college campuses across the United States as well. All right. Uh, Jim Crisulo, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, I know you're very busy, so thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good to be with you, Jill. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Stay sane. That's the hard one. <laughs> All right, you too. Stay stay safe, Thanks. stay healthy. Uh, that is Jim Crisula, a CBS News reporter, uh, bringing us up to date on a sweeping stay-at-home order in Southern California. And as uh, Jim was mentioning, they're already seeing an increase in cases from when people were gathering in the States for their Thanksgiving and big concerns that this order is going to be in place for at least three weeks, and that puts people right through Christmas uh, 11 counties, as he said, uh, millions of people that are now under this order. And that's because the ICUs in that part of the state are nearing capacity.
I find this story so interesting, and I'm curious how many Canadians are going to take part. There is a new campaign, and the goal of this campaign is to bombard Chinese embassies with cards and letters. The cards would be Christmas cards for Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavar, and the letters talking about Canadians and their plea and their desire that something be done about the two Canadians being held in Chinese prisons. Well, Guy Saint-Jacques is on the line with me now, Senior Fellow at the China Institute of the University of Alberta. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, what are your thoughts on this campaign and the message that it could send? Well, I was uh, very pleased when I was contacted last week by uh, Charles Barton, who is uh, who used to be a British diplomat, uh, and uh, we worked together in Beijing uh, uh, a few years ago. <clears throat> I was ambassador there from 2012 to 2016, and uh, Charles was a, a good friend of Michael Kovrig, and he has he has been thinking about uh, ways to publicized the, the plight of uh, uh, Michael, and he came up with this idea, uh, why don't we send uh, a letter to uh, the Chinese uh, ambassador in our respective country, uh, together with a Christmas card that we uh, ask him to forward to Michael Kovic or Michael Spaver, and I thought uh, this was a, a great idea, so uh, I was very pleased uh, to subscribe, and in fact, I have in my end, I just prepared the, uh, the uh, letter to Ambassador Tsong Piu, uh, and uh, I will uh, mail it uh, uh, later tonight. And uh, I will uh, contact a number of people to ask them also to, to do the, the same thing. And I hope that uh, uh, this also will be uh, supported by people in the United States, uh, in the U.K., in fact, in all uh, countries uh, that uh, are concerned about uh, democracy and uh, human rights, and I hope that this will send a very powerful uh, signal to the uh, Chinese leadership. Uh, do you mind if I ask, and uh, not that uh, word for word, but do you mind if I ask, what's the tone of the letter that you wrote? Well, it's uh, very simple. Uh, uh, I say that, uh, in fact, I was at the conference uh, last night where I said that uh, uh, China has to uh, to listen. They they have to agree to reopen official dialogues so that we can f- find a way out of this uh, crisis and uh, which has uh, lasted uh, uh, too long. And uh, uh, I ask him also to uh, forward the uh, the letter to uh, Mr. Kovrig and. Uh, We'll see what uh, will come out of that. But I think this is what is uh, very sad in this uh, whole affair is that China has cut uh, uh, all uh, official dialogues. There are episodic uh, contacts between the two uh, foreign affairs uh, ministers. But, uh, uh, you know, when I was ambassador, China insisted on creating uh, a new uh, official dialogue. It's called the National Security and Rule of Law Dialogue. And they insisted on creating that to uh, resolve the case of uh, Kevin Garrett. Uh, You may remember that Kevin and Julia Garrett were also arrested uh, in similar circumstances to the uh, the Michaels. Uh, In their case, it uh, happened in August 2014. And uh, it took uh, two years to be uh, to, uh, until we were finally able to extract uh, uh, Kevin. And uh, uh, the Chinese uh, leaders, uh, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, were angry every time a Canadian prime minister would raise a high-profile consular case. And they said, well, let's create this new dialogue, uh, which will be the, the proper forum to uh, discuss these cases. And when I met <clears throat> Ambassador Tsong Piu early this year, I told him, I, I said, Ambassador Tsong, when I was ambassador and you were the director general re- responsible for Canada, you will recall that it was you, China, that insisted on creating this new dialogue. You were angry every time these cases would be raised. Now you have uh, one high-profile consular case, that of Mrs. Mang, we have at least two, and uh, let's uh, not forget we have uh, four Canadians on death row for drug trafficking. I said, why don't you agree 
uh, to convene this dialogue. And he, he didn't, uh, he had no answer. Hmm. Uh, when you say, too, that it makes the leadership angry when they hear, when, when Canadian politicians bring it up, do you think it will also make them angry if they start being flooded with letters and cards that are earmarked, letters to uh, the ambassador, and but also cards earmarked to uh, both Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor? Well, I hope it will uh, <clears throat> sensitize them to the fact that they have uh, squandered uh, a lot of the goodwill that existed in Canada. Uh, that had been built over time. <clears throat> but if you look at uh, recent polls, uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, most Canadians are uh, wary of, of China and they feel that we should try to diversify our trade. They, they don't trust uh, China. And I think that for the uh, ambassador, uh, the Chinese ambassador, it's important to report back to uh, uh, his uh, headquarters, uh, the views of Canadians. Uh, you know, I went through uh, a somewhat uh, similar process when I was ambassador, and there, there, there was a campaign against the, uh, uh, the seal uh, hunt uh, that was taking place. And, uh, you know, I, uh, it helped me to measure the level of uh, public uh, uh, opposition to this uh, hunt, and uh, I would report back. So in this case, I hope that uh, uh, the the ambassador will do his job and report this to his uh, authorities, and uh, uh, it will be a confirmation that Canadians uh, uh, take this uh, uh, very unfortunate situation uh, very uh, seriously. And I think I know the answer to this question, but is there any chance the cards, any of them, do you think will get to either of the Michaels? I don't think so. I think the, it's more likely that they will uh, end up in the garbage can or uh, in the recycling bin. But the, it's important to, to do the gesture and for the ambassador to know. The, you know, there is an, another aspect in all of this, which is that... Uh, it's very easy for uh, the, the Chinese ambassador or for the Chinese consul general in Canada to use uh, Canadian public media to talk to the press. Uh, I have seen op-eds in, uh, in papers. Uh, they give interviews. Uh, all this is impossible uh, for Ambassador Barton and our uh, consul general in, in China, where the information is uh, tightly uh, controlled. And so, uh, you know, I see this as part of a, a campaign to uh, just to uh, emphasize that, uh, uh, you know, the, we are going through a very difficult uh, situation. Uh, this is happening as well, and people are being encouraged to write these letters and send these cards at the same time that we're hearing about uh, well, some uh, U.S. reports uh, that uh, American officials are looking at the idea of deferred prosecution, uh, some agreement that could allow Meng Wanzhou to be returned to China. Uh, do you view those things as very separate, or is there a chance that suddenly if letters start arriving, that uh, not that it would derail that, but that, like you said, the officials there can get angered so easily? Well, I think that, uh, uh, you know, I was uh, very encouraged when I said this report that came out uh, last Thursday in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, I'm not sure if, it can, if uh, a triangular solution can be worked out. And by triangular, I mean that uh, if Mrs. Meng is, uh, if, uh, is freed and she is allowed to return to China, we, we have to make sure that the two Michaels also will be allowed to uh, come back to, to Canada. And the fact that this the, this information was leaked uh, either show uh, the shows that they are close to uh, a resolution, or it's to put more pressure on Mrs. Meng. But I think that the letter campaign uh, uh, can add pressure on the Chinese leadership. They know that the reputation of China has been tarnished. Uh, uh, with that, plus the, the, what they have done in, uh, and are doing in Xinjiang or in Hong Kong or in the South China Sea. And I think at some point, uh, uh, I hope that Xi Jinping will say, well, uh, maybe it's time to lower the pressure and to, to find uh, a solution. And I think a solution could be found because uh, in the case of the two Michaels, uh, they have been officially charged, but as their trial has not started yet, they could say that new information 
has been brought to the attention of the uh, procurators, and they have decided that the best solution would be to expel them. But uh, there's still quite a bit of work, and I'm sure that uh, officials in Ottawa are in close contact with uh, those in uh, Washington, and that Ambassador Barton also is busy trying to see uh, uh, what can be done, and uh, let's hope that there will be uh, developments very soon. All right. We will leave it there. Guy Saint-Jacques, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you coming on the program. Uh, Thank you very much. All right. Guy Saint-Jacques is a former ambassador to China, also a senior fellow at the China Institute of the University of Alberta. And again, Canadians and others as well are being encouraged to write letters to the current ambassador and in that letter enclose Christmas cards, Christmas messages for both Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. If you're wondering what the address is, it is Ambassador Kong Peiyu and the Embassy of China is located at 5 St. Patrick Street, that is in Ottawa, Ontario, if you are wanting to join the campaign and uh, would also like to write a letter and send uh, cards to the two Canadians being held in Chinese prisons. Here we are sitting at December 7th. We are waiting to hear the latest on the restrictions in this province, so whether they are going to be brought to extended, whether more restrictions are going to come in. Uh, a lot of questions I think that people have. And the Angus Reid Institute has just done a poll asking Canadians so where they are as far as anxiety levels, but also what they're planning to do for the holidays. And the answers vary from province to province, but there certainly are some surprises when it comes to the answers. And joining me to talk more about this is Shachi Curl, who is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. Thanks so much for being with us today. Happy to be here, Jill. Uh, well, we're all waiting uh, to see what happens with restrictions, if there's a, an increase in those coming up today. But you've done some research and talked to people about how people have changed their habits, so what they are doing. Let's start with Christmas activities. Well, look, there, there are Christmas activities that we can do that have absolutely no impact on public health, but may have an impact on our on our, on our level of cheer, on our emotional or mental health. So putting up a tree or, or putting up Christmas lights, uh, sending Christmas greetings, that type of those those types of traditional uh, Christmas time activities. If anything, uh, Canadians are planning to do that as much or more than they would have in a pre-pandemic or in a normal year. Um, but when it comes to visiting friends and family, either locally or out of town or out of province, of course that's something that public health officials have been begging us not to do in every province, including in British Columbia, think, look, just don't do it this year. It's not this year. Um, but what we find is that in BC, uh, about 20% of people say they still intend to visit friends and family uh, in, uh, in, in their own community. Uh, and further, 8% in this province say that they intend to visit friends or family out of town or out of province. So those numbers, while, uh, you know, it's important to, to put everything into context. In a normal year, those numbers are something like, you know, they're, they're way higher. They're like 80% uh, in terms of visiting friends or family locally. It's 51%. Half uh, say that they would do it in a pre-pandemic year uh, to go out of town or to go out of province. So we really do have to put into context just how many fewer uh, are are planning to do those things this year, and how many more are planning to stay home? But still, if you're a public health official, and Jill, I misspoke a moment ago. It's not eight uh, percent in BC who plan to go out of province or out of community. It's six percent, so it's, a, it's it's lower than that. Okay. But even then, uh, if you're a public health official, you're probably freaking out a little bit by these numbers, uh, and you're realizing that uh, if if you are going to be in a situation where um, you're making the case for people to stay home. That may be uh, a message you need to pound a little bit harder. But let's also talk about the other side of this. And the other side of it, and I'm not saying that there's another side that is somehow safer, but what we also hear from our public health officials is if you live alone, it's okay to visit with or interact with a couple of people, one or two people, 
um, outside your, your household that you consider to be your household. And we know, for example, that in Metro Vancouver and BC, a very high percentage of households are single individual person households. So that may account for a little bit of what those friends and family visiting locally might be. But of course, it, it doesn't account for all of it, and uh, and it is a number again that that sort of makes it that may make the toes and, and hair and fingernails curl of public health officials. Looking at the numbers, when you just look at them, you're right and think, oh, that seems like a lot of people, even though the numbers are lower. But like you said, when you factor in single person households, and also uh, when you think about, well, what is the that damage being done then if somebody is completely isolated and told, and for Christmas this year or whatever holiday you normally celebrate you go, you need to stay home and you're not going to have any human contact that there's a there's a price there too there is uh and this is this is the you know call it the the, the horrible or or the very risky or the very difficult choice that so many families are making anecdotally this was the conversation i had with my parents on the weekend what are we going to do this year how are we going to handle it uh, what are we going to do with our siblings? So, you know, and, and, and every family now is having to have difficult conversations around what the best thing to do is, what the common sense thing to do is, uh, and what the safest thing to do is, because, you know, nobody wants to be responsible, especially now when the end of this is in sight, right? We heard today that the vaccines could be here and in people's arms as soon as next week. There is there is sort of a moment of joy where you feel like, gosh, we could be turning the corner. But, of course, uh, until that corner is turned, this thing is as dangerous as, as it ever was. But people have to make very difficult and decisions. And, and uh, you know, they have to weigh, as you pointed out, the isolation or the mental health impact that it has on elderly relatives, on grandparents, on aunts and uncles, um, as much as it does on, on, you know, risking getting people infected with a virus. Uh, you also asked people, and we've been focusing so much on the coming weeks and what's going to happen for the rest of December and during this time when so many people are so used to gathering. Uh, you also asked people, though, what they've been doing in the past few weeks, how many people uh, people have been seeing outside their, their household. And it really, looking at these numbers, they really do vary province to province. Absolutely. And the mindset really varies province to province. So you see in British Columbia a really high number of people, the vast majority of people saying that they are interacting uh, socially um, with fewer than six people. So, you know, about half, 44% say in BC that we're not talking to anybody, we're not spending time physically with anybody outside our immediate household. The rest say that, that they're limiting that to one to five people. Um, and then you've got a, just a very, very small slice, 5% saying that they're seeing six or more people. Next door in Alberta, that number of people who say that they're seeing six or more spikes to eight percent it, it more than triples uh, and the number of people in Alberta and Saskatchewan who say that they're not seeing anyone outside their immediate household uh, it, it nearly halves. Uh, so you've got massive mindsets between uh, mindset differences between BC and Alberta the Atlantic provinces are sort of doing their own thing entirely in part because they've been part of that Atlantic bubble the mindset in Atlantic Canada in Newfoundland Labrador in Nova Scotia New Brunswick and PEI is hey we can hang out because there's very few cases but of course that is changing even in those provinces so this thing it just seems to be morphing and shifting day to day week to week as it has done chill over the last nine months and um and you know layer into that covid fatigue people are tired of this layer into that i think what is at times some some mixed or or confusing messaging from public health officials as to what's okay one week and what's not okay the other and i understand that situations evolve so orders and and recommendations have to evolve but it's hard to keep up if you're somebody who is trying to keep a job, trying to keep kids at home from, from just ripping each other's hair out while they homeschool. If, if you've got 
multiple generations in a household, you've got a lot of reasons to be stressed. And being able to keep up with, with news on this day to day and stay current is pretty tough. And just before I let you go, Shachi, you also asked people, and like you said, we got some very encouraging news today about the rollout of vaccinations in this country. Uh, But you also asked people about uh, what they were thinking looking to the future. And a lot of Canadians said they still expect the worst to come. Particularly on the financial side, Jill, there's there's no doubt that um, the mindset among Canadians, both in terms of the the public health uh, and the and the illness side to this, also the economic damage that is yet to come. Canadians are in, in a pretty uh, pessimistic place on both fronts. They have been told, and now they expect that between sort of now and, and the next several weeks, more people will get sick, more people will be in ICU, and sadly, more people will die from this terrible disease. And indeed, on the financial front, um, there is a, a real sense, near unanimous sense, that, that the worst really is yet to come economically, that businesses will go under, businesses that depend on the Christmas season uh, really to make or break their year will, will be broken, uh, and that that will trickle down in terms of loss of jobs, loss of hours, loss of opportunity. All right. So, well, Shachi, uh, appreciate you taking the time. Uh, to on, that cheerful, on that cheerful note, note. <laughs> let, let me let me actually let me say one thing to cheer everyone up at the end of this, which is in terms of things that Canadians can do to celebrate Christmas that that doesn't risk mental health or sorry, uh, physical health. So things like putting up a tree or, or putting up lights. They're all gung-ho for that, and they are looking forward to Christmas as, as much as they would be in any other year. So that's, that's something to get us through the next few weeks. <laughs> all right, so we'll leave it there on a positive note. Shachi, thank you so much. <laughs> all right, take care, Jill. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. There is going to be a meeting of the Vancouver Park Board this evening, and some are raising questions about some of the amendments or, or the positions being put forward for a vote, uh, saying that if they are passed the way they are, it could make the Park Board less democratic. Well, let's bring in John Cooper, who is an NPA Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Well, thanks for having me, Jill. Well, like any other body that has been meeting, we know there have been big changes as far as uh, doing it remotely, uh, video conferencing, trying to make it work during a pandemic. Uh, One of the considerations, though, that's being put to the Park Board this evening is the allowance of commissioners to consider uh, to continue uh, being participating electronically, even once we get to a post-pandemic situation. Uh, Do you have concerns about that? Well, I have concerns about a couple of these things because they require changes to the Vancouver Charter. And the Vancouver Charter is provincial legislation, which the Park Board has operated under for many, many years. And it makes sure that, um, you know, we have a good governance structure in place. And and so it's really important. I've been on the board now for nine years. And prior to COVID, there was no reason for us to uh, beat electronically. Uh, Part of the role of a Commissioner, I believe, and uh, Sabre City Councillors, really to be in front of the public because it's much different facing uh, an individual coming to you to speak in the in the uh, in the chamber or in the room than it is when you're just hearing somebody um, uh, with a call. The other thing is you're not sort of able to read the room uh, with the other commissioners that are in the room, um, body language or anything like that. So I think it's important that we continue to meet uh, face to face. That's that's the first one that, I, that I'm concerned about. Whose idea was it to look at this and to perhaps change, make a change to the charter that would allow for commissioners to continue uh, being there electronically? Well, I, you know, we have a, we have an excellent staff at the park board, and they bring forward recommendations that they, um, you know, consider might be a positive mood. And, and our job is always to be the, you know, kind of the the second look at things and and, and think about it. You know, thinking about what the public thinks about it before we actually approve it. The one that I'm most concerned about is the taking away the ability of two uh, commissioners to call a special meeting. And what's important about that is a special meeting allows the public to come and speak on an issue that perhaps the majority does not wish to be, um, you know, to be brought forward. And in my nine years, again, on the board, it's only really happened three times, but they've often been big issues that are important. 
this change uh, that's being proposed would, would eliminate that. Um, in the report, it says, well, you could just do it at a regular meeting, but actually you don't have speakers at a regular meeting. It would have to be referred to committee. And in that case, you know, it's unlikely to happen because the majority would, would either table the motion or defer it. So it's an important, it's the detail stuff and it's not very exciting and, you know, <laughs> but but it is when you're doing it. It's important the public are able to come and speak to the park board on issues that uh, may have an may have an important um, decision to be made. Uh, so when have there been calls for special meetings? Was it Oppenheimer Park or, or Strathcona? I feel like I can uh, remember. That. Yeah, there was a there was a special meeting on Oppenheimer Park. Um, there was a special meeting on Stanley Park, and there was a special meeting um, a few years ago on safety issues around community centers when we were first uh, starting to bring people uh, inside um, into community centers for shelter and there was some security concerns and and that was the other time that I recall it being held. So I think commissioners are very careful about not calling these meetings um, irresponsibly or if, but it's really about almost protecting minority rights here and I think that's that's one of the things the park board is very close to, to people in terms of their ability to access us. And I, I just don't want to see us lose this. And, uh, you know, maybe long after I'm off the board that uh, this might take a while to happen. But um, I think it's important we, we really think carefully before we start changing the Vancouver Charter. So as it is right now with the special meetings, a special meeting can be called either by the chair of the park board or two commissioners can write and request that a special meeting goes ahead. And is it guaranteed then if two commissioners request that a special meeting has to be held? Yes, it has to be held. um, You know, they get 48 hours before it's held, but it has to be held. Yeah. So that, that would be taken away. That would just be the majority or the chair could do that. So uh, if there was an issue that, for instance, the board uh, in its majority did not want to um, discuss, um, it would be very difficult to move that forward as an agenda item. And again, I I know this comes from staff, but it has to come from somewhere because you would look at this and think, well, if it was being abused, fine. If people were calling for special meetings every other day, that's not what they're for. That's why they're called special meetings. But it doesn't seem like anything like that has happened. So why does there need to be or why is there even any kind of push for a change in this policy? Well, you know, the the chair of the park board uh, controls the agenda and, you know, the the chair and the majority have a have some input with staff as of course you know um so i i don't know exactly where this came from there might have been some pushback there was some folks that weren't happy about the meeting it was called around stanley park but you know we've been the park board has been around for a long time over 100 years and uh you know we've had this provision i think it's important that uh, we don't do it and i i think people are really worried about changes that are happening during a pandemic um, when it, even right now, it restricts our ability to hear the public. So to, to do more of that, I think, is not the right time for sure. Uh, is it that the park board or, or certain commissioners on the board don't like the negative uh, attention? I, I mean, the, the board is still dealing w- w- with what's happening in Strathcona Park. There are reports out there's now been a death in Strathcona Park in that camp. And a lot of people are questioning why the park board hasn't done anything about it. Yeah, I you know I think it's you, you have to look in the context of the park board overall. All these years, there's been good decisions and, and bad decisions, but as an institution, it's still with some great parks and recreation that is world renowned. So I'm always proud to do the work and be on the park board. But in this particular instance, I just feel it's not the time to make a change like this. Um, the charter protects a lot of things. There's a provision in the charter that says you can't take a park out of jurisdiction without a two-thirds vote of both council and the park board. Uh, so I'm also worried that this kind of a change could set a precedent down the road to perhaps look at other changes. And I think that would be not in the best interest of uh, uh, residents of Vancouver. Uh, because even the way it is now with how the board is meeting electronically, uh, have you noticed, uh, is it more difficult? Like you said, you're not, you're not reading the body language uh, of somebody in the room, but is it more difficult, do you think, for the public to also address the board and to make sure the public knows what's going on? Yeah, I think the, the, the staff are doing the best they can to allow the public to get uh, 
you know, to, but, you know, there's not everybody's comfortable with that technology. You know, they have to phone in at a particular time. They have to be watching the meeting to make sure they don't miss their slot. You know, there's, there's a lot of um, folks that maybe are not as savvy with technology that have a difficult time um, contacting the board. And I think um, we need to really think about that. You know, we've always been very open. We've, we've had meetings on the aquarium where we've had, say, hundreds of people, you know, waiting outside and being able to speak. And um, that's what democracy is like. It's not always, uh, it's not always pretty, but if you listen to the public, generally you come to a good decision. And just to, to, to go back to why this is being done now during a pandemic, because wasn't the procedure, and again, not the sexiest topic, but the procedure bylaw for the bar, the board, the guides, weren't they, didn't they just get a, an overhaul? Weren't they just redone? Uh, they were fairly recently, but there was some, there was some things that, you know, and I looked through it and some of them make, a, make, make some sense. Where I don't have any problem with minor wording on procedures and things like that. What I have problem is, is when you start to talk about making changes to the Vancouver Charter, that requires provincial legislation. You start to, you know, you start to tinker with something that's been working well. And um, I, I just can't support that. So I hope that the, the other commissioners will, I've had a conversations with some of them to say, you know, give this some thought. Um, you know, I've been around a while, some of you are new, but think about what this might mean long term. And I hope that they will take a take a second look at this and, and perhaps say, look, we'll, we'll do the procedure changes, but we're going to leave the charter alone. That would be my hope. And how confident are you that's what's going to play out? Well, I don't know. There's been a lot of votes lately that have gone 5-2, so I'm not confident, but I'm hoping that... Um, I'm hoping they'll take it seriously, and, and that's the best that I can do is, is try and do the best for, uh, for the residents of Vancouver. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Commissioner John Cooper, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. Uh, John Cooper is a Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Uh, he is with the NPA uh, looking at some procedural changes that could have a big impact on how the board meets and what some of the rules are in the future. Well, as you know, the holiday season is here. It doesn't look quite the same, certainly doesn't feel the same. And not a surprise that people are still, though, trying to find a way to get into the festive spirit. Not just putting up Christmas lights and decorations, although I think people have been putting way more up this year. And the hydro numbers show that as well. But what's really good to see and to hear about is so many people getting into the spirit of giving and realizing that there is likely more need this year as well. Our show contributor, John Jang, has a story that is all about one person's generous donation, a donation that has an entire restaurant staff stunned by this one act of kindness. Take a listen to this. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. It's no secret the food industry is struggling these days as restaurants and bars across the province now face a 10 o'clock curfew every single night. That not only impacts the bottom line for each business, but it of course impacts every single person working in that industry. From servers who see a drastic cut in their hours and tips, to kitchen staff who don't really have a choice anymore to work more hours to earn a few extra dollars to get through the holidays. And even with increased takeout and delivery service, these restaurants are facing an uphill battle as they try to make ends meet. Over the past few weeks and months, I know, Jill, you've been speaking with distressed restaurant owners who have voiced their concerns with you on this show. But today, today I have something quite special, some very unexpected good news. Now, chances are, if you have ever passed through the intersection of Commercial and Broadway in Vancouver, you've probably seen this restaurant called St. Augustine's. It's in a really great location where you can just drop jump off the SkyTrain, and hop right into your favorite pint. Well, like other restaurants, these have been challenging days for the staff at St. Augustine's, but they've been doing the best they can with what they have, and because of that, it seems their efforts have actually been rewarded. Now, apparently, an anonymous person kindly donated $200 to every single person that is working at St. Augustine's. When I read this story, I had to find out exactly what this was all about, so I actually called St. Augustine's earlier in the afternoon and spoke with one of their managers, who, because of privacy concerns, wanted to remain nameless for this particular conversation, but she did confirm with me that every single staff member got the same $200 donation. Yeah, so they we have the front of house staff, like the servers and bartenders, and then the kitchen as well. 
Now, although she doesn't know exactly how much was donated, she was able to give me this ballpark figure. Yeah, so it, it would be like around four grand. And this wasn't just a stranger who, on a whim, decided to spread some holiday cheer. This person is a customer of St. Augustine's. Yeah, yeah, I, it is a customer. I asked her just what this meant for her and her staff, especially considering the industry has had such challenging days. Yeah, it's it's honestly super unbelievable. Like, um, we just pulled everybody individually into the office, told them the situation, and then they gave them the money. And most people were, like, speechless. A lot of people started crying. It's just... Uh, yeah, I don't really know what to say. It was just like an unbelievable kindness. Like a lot of people aren't really in a position where they can do that. So it was just really crazy. Now, I'll be honest. I have heard of generous business owners who like to treat their staff during the holidays or a coworker who wins the lottery who wants to help out their colleagues. This was the first time I have ever heard of a customer playing the role of Santa Claus. Yeah, I've never read anything like that anywhere else like it's always just like the owners of the business or something so it's just super crazy that you know somebody just likes coming in and they like the staff and they want to do something for us but on that level it's just like really hard to believe like everybody is just super grateful and especially like around Christmas time people are like stressed and with like shorter hours you know it just gets it's just like hard it makes a really big difference for us and it was just really nice but how did the staff members eventually find out? Because if I put myself in their shoes, you know, business is slow, I show up for my shift, and all of a sudden the manager wants to talk to me in the back room in the office, my first thought is that I am getting laid off. The last thing I'd expect is to suddenly receive $200 out of nowhere. Yeah, it, it's pretty funny, like, when you go up to someone, you're like, hey, can I talk to you in the office? And then they, they're walking over and they're all nervous, and they're just like, am I in trouble, or... Are you cutting my shift? And then, yeah, everyone was just, like, in disbelief. And it really it really touched everyone. And a lot of people are hoping that they could, like, pay it forward or, like, find something else to do. It just really, like, changed the spirits and, like, really affected everybody personally. What goes around comes around. And I have to know, does St. Augustine's have any plans to give back to that generous patron? Um, we're we're looking into it, but we don't have any specifics at the moment. But for sure, we're seeing what we can do. Apart from this incredible gift and story, how have things gone for St. Augustine's with the early curfew? I imagine it can't be very easy these days. Yeah, so I, I think for every restaurant, like, it is really slow. Like, business has slowed down a lot, just, like, all across the board. And, then, yeah, especially with the... The earlier last call time, we can't stay open as late, so hours are shorter and all of that. At the end of the day, it's important to know that we're all in this together. And with generous acts of kindness like this, it's a really nice reminder that there are good people in the world. It's just super insane. It really, like, it, it really makes you feel good, especially around Christmas time. Like, you just kind of, like, have that Christmas spirit and, you know, things are super crazy in the world lately so yeah it just it's just like an unbelievable act of kindness and uh, thanks for bringing us that story that uh, comes to us uh, from our show contributor, John Jang. And again, uh, the person John was talking to asked uh, not to be identified, but we still wanted to bring you that incredible story of giving.